three times a week, The Right Time with Bomani Jones podcast brings you the latest from technology, music, and the very best analysis of the games. Plus, there's a robust community of friends, including Dominique Foxworth for Foxworth Fridays. That's The Right Time with Bomani Jones on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and on ESPN's YouTube channel. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I'm out in New York all week filling in hosting Around the Horn for Tony Reale. So today's podcast is actually a re-air of one that I thought was particularly timely right now in light of Deshaun Watson signing with the Browns. It's with my former colleague, Carrie Potts, who's a survivor of sexual assault. She tells her harrowing story of escaping a man in Italy on this podcast. Uh, she's also an award-winning communications pro. Uh, she's got 20 years of experience working for a bunch of companies within sports and entertainment, women's economic policy policy and the nonprofit sector. So she spends a lot of the podcast sharing some of the information that I was able to be uh, privy to a couple years ago as part of one of the seminars she would give fellow ESPN employees about how we talk about sexual assault, rape, harassment, domestic violence, using the right language, educating ourselves on it, and making sure that we're smart when we talk about it on the air. And she really stressed what an impact we have as communicators and how we can shape so much of how the audience views things. I was blown away not only by her presentation, but the reaction that so many people in the room, particularly men, had to what she said and how counter it was to so much of the conditioning that we have um, just growing up, the ways that we're taught to think about accusations, and it was really moving. And on the Round the Horn today, I tried to sort of briefly address why it's so important for fans and journalists alike, for anyone in the sports world, not only to get educated about these issues, um, but be willing to hold teams accountable when they make a decision to take a player on like Watson, to ask the right questions, to ask for transparency. Um, here's what I said. While the Browns will fairly face criticism for the Watson signing contract and their failure to reach out to his accusers, it's hard to imagine many other teams would have behaved differently. There was, after all, a bidding war for his services, and we've seen this time and time again, the prioritization of talent and the bottom line over everything else. But we can't just shrug our shoulders and accept the status quo. While we await the outcomes of the civil cases, it's necessary to continue having educated conversations about cases of harassment and assault, not because we presume guilt, but because our culture has conditioned us to blame victims and defend athletes, to believe that pay grabs are common and successful, they're not, and that the legal system will offer a clean, satisfying answer to any questions of guilt. When the truth is, according to recent estimates by the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, just 0.6% of sexual assault cases result in incarceration. Understanding how inadequately the legal system handled these cases matters, and what also matters is demanding transparency and accountability from any team willing to make a man accused by over 20 women the face of their franchise. I think we just need to keep having smart conversations and we can only do that if we educate ourselves. So I think you guys will get a lot out of hearing Carrie's story and the way she explains the intricacies of these issues. Also, and by the way, I went back to listen to this podcast uh, before re-airing it and it's from 2017. And I left in the section about Louis C.K. I was gonna cut it out cause ew, but I decided that it was worth keeping in. Um, when he talks about you know a woman saying yes to a date with a man is literally insane, he was telling on himself. 
and I just watched the Cosby doc. We have to talk about Cosby. If you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend it. But there were all these instances where Cosby told on himself during the show and over the course of the scripts that he wrote and controlled and, and helped work on, um, he gave little hints at some of his behaviors. And that's something that we now, looking back, know that Louis C.K. was doing throughout a lot of his stand-up as well. And while it's tempting to cut it out and forget that that bit that he that he used was actually really on the nose when it comes to these issues, uh, it's sometimes better to remind ourselves that even the very men calling these things out are doing them, right? And so we decide we think we know what kind of person celebrities are, even having never met them. We create stories about them so that we can hang on to our fandom. And um, even in certain cases where they are outspoken about these issues and they align themselves as allies, that doesn't mean that there's a certainty in their own behaviors. Um, so I left it in. And I also, um, despite now finding Louis C.K. super gross, think that that bit was uh, funny and spot on um, and perhaps informed entirely by his own his own behaviors. What I will say as, as someone who used to be a huge fan of his and what I find um, has been easier for me over the years is as we get more and more stories of these high high profile athletes and celebrities and musicians and otherwise accused of these things, convicted of these things, is I just decided at one point that nobody was above reproach. My favorite athletes, musicians, comedians, people that I really respected and I was a fan of, for me personally, the choice is to say whoever it is, if there's enough evidence there and enough of a feeling that something happened, um, I'm not going to I'm not going to try to defend them because I want to protect my ability to still root for them or listen to their music or watch their stand up. I can create some pretty hard and fast lines. And that hurts a lot more with people that you're a big fan of or that you get a lot of um enjoyment and entertainment out of, uh, but it's also a much cleaner way to handle it than trying to create excuses in your mind for why X person is bad, but this person you still want to keep around and, and root for or, or engage with. So um, that's been my approach. And so I left the Louis C.K. bit in, uh, but more for what it can teach us than as any sort of uh, commendation of his work. We'll be back next week with a brand new podcast, uh, some progress, uh, an update on my upcoming Grand Canyon trip and on my hardworking Do Crew members. So enjoy the pod. That's what she said. This is a sort of heavy show, but I think it's super important. And my guest is certainly one worth listening to, Carrie Potts. She's the Senior Director of Communications for ESPN. And last week, she spent a couple hours of her day doing a couple panels with um, ESPN employees. It's something that she's done with the college football side of the ESPN staff in the past. And this was for a whole bunch of other folks at the company who may not have heard her before, myself included. And she talked about her experience with sexual assault. She was assaulted by a man in Italy and about how important it is that we talk about the way we discuss sexual assault, domestic violence, um, interpersonal violence, and what a big role we have as the media in describing it, discussing it, giving our opinions on it, and helping people uh, get more educated on it. And I'll tell you, I heard from so many other employees that watched or were there um, that they thought about it for hours, if not days afterwards. Um, it was so powerful what she said. It was so important to understand how many of us aren't fully educated enough on something that we're expected now to talk about a lot. And it's not something that necessarily people working in sports needed to know a lot about before. But now, if you are not educated on it, you are not serving your audience or yourself correctly. And I warn you, if if uh, if you are someone... Um, that is triggered by conversations like this. There is some fairly graphic detail about her own assault. Um, 
one thing that she left out that I remember really stood out to me in her original um, speech to employees last week was that um, while she was being assaulted, her assailant dug his fingernail into her stomach and she still has a mark there. And she talked about, you know, no matter what happens, that will always be there as a reminder to her. And so um, in the end, when her assailant was found guilty but ended up not serving any jail time whatsoever. Um, she has this mark forever reminding her of, of what happened. And um, so I do warn you that there are some details in it. Um, later uh, on in the podcast, we get into more specifics of outside cases and how to how to talk about it and be educated on it. But the beginning is a bit of conversation about her own incident. Um, and also something that she said about needing to get past the idea of being in fear all the time and that it's important to understand that um, just because you believe a woman when she says she was assaulted doesn't mean that all men are that way. It doesn't mean that you're allowing for a discussion to be um, one-sided or if you believe women when they say that or, or men that are victims when they say that they're victims, that doesn't mean that you now need to fear everybody in the world. It's still a small percentage of people, but you can believe them. And it reminded me of this... Um, Louis C.K. bit. It was in his HBO special a couple years ago. And he talks about how brave it is anytime a woman just goes on a date. And this is a bit, this is a little bit from his bit. The courage it takes for a woman to say yes to a date with a man is beyond anything I can imagine. A woman saying yes to a date with a man is literally insane and ill-advised. How do women still go out with guys when you consider the fact that there is no greater threat to women than men? We're the number one threat. To women, globally and historically, we're the number one cause of injury and mayhem to women. We're the worst thing that ever happens to them. If you're a guy, imagine you could only date a half bear, half, half lion. Oh, I hope this one's nice. I hope he doesn't do what he's going to do. It's funny, and it's funny especially in Louis C.K.'s delivery, but it's tragic and it's unfortunately incredibly true. And so it's so unfair to not only never listen to victims and never respect their stories and and their experiences, um, but also to to make them feel so guilty about what has happened and to and to blame them for what has happened to the point where um, you're just trying to deflect because your own fear of it happening to you is deflected by you being able to create a narrative by which they were to blame for it. So it could never happen to you because it was their own fault. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. It's called the, the belief in a just world theory. And it's a really interesting aspect of why we victim blame. But anyway, let's get to Carrie because it's a really great conversation. So uh, here's that interview. That's what she said. More that's what she said in just a second. But just a reminder that I always love to hear from you, whether you're tweeting me your thoughts at Sarah Spain, Sarah with an H, Spain like the country, on Twitter, whether you're subscribing in the ESPN app and getting an alert whenever I have a new episode up, or when you're listening in Apple Podcasts where you can leave a rating and a review and you can subscribe so it's easy to find next time. So do any or all of those things, especially love it when you leave a rating and a review and let me know who you want to hear from, who you want me to have on the podcast next. That's what she said. So happy to be joined by Carrie Potts, Senior Director of Communications for ESPN. She's been with ESPN since 2003, working on NFL, NBA, college football, ESPN Films, the ESPYs. Uh, she is a New Yorker, but she works out of Atlanta. And I think college sports is sort of your wheelhouse, right? Doing publicity for all of ESPN's college coverage. Yes, I've been overseeing our, our college sports properties publicity since December of 2010. So yeah, I've been at this a while. Which means I don't get to work with you much because I don't do much on the college sphere. But I just communicate with you via Twitter and other social media. 
That's true. But do you remember, <laughs> it harkens back to the beginning of ESPNW. That was a yes. business that I helped with the ideation of and then the launch. And then, and then I walked away from all of you. Yes. Thank you. You ditched <laughs> us. But I wanted to have you on because you gave a couple presentations uh, this week to ESPN employees on interpersonal violence and sexual assault, the aim of which was to sort of educate employees on the baseline that they might not know and then influence how we cover them, how we talk about them, um, and how we present them to our audience because we're in a really important role in terms of how people view the stories that we're talking about um, and whether we lead them down a path that is educated and respectful to all sides or whether we even in some ways unintentionally um, pers- you know, you know, continue stereotypes or, or the, the ways that we um, have been influenced by society to not trust victims or to present cases in a way that makes them um, sort of unfairly judged by the public. And it's, Absolutely. it was so useful. Oh my gosh. And this is something that I have spent a lot of time thinking and talking about, and I still learned a ton. So I can only imagine the people there who haven't really dedicated much thought to this, how much they walked away with. And I, and so many employees that I spoke to said they were thinking about it for the whole day afterwards, or, yeah. you know, how much they, they gathered from it. So I wanted to share it with my listeners. So um, you had your own experience with um, sexual assault, and it inspired you to become a state certified rape crisis counselor and a victim's advocate. So um, in speaking about this, you're not only speaking from personal experience, but obviously you've gone through the training to understand the best way to share it with others. So let's start with that experience that you had on vacation in Italy and the ways in which your brain even was convoluted um, in terms of blaming yourself or finding um, ways to kind of judge whether you had made the right decisions along the way solely because that's how we usually approach this is to look at what the victim could have done differently instead of what what the assaulter. Right. I mean, when you become a victim, it's not like you suddenly understand all the things that we have been taught to believe and how false they are. Um, you become a victim and you you look at the same reference points everyone else has and you go down the list and said, well, I did that wrong and that wrong and therefore I deserved some element of this. Now, I'm not saying that all of it, um, you know, I didn't take all the blame on myself. I was just pissed. To an extent, I see myself as um, elevated in terms of my awareness of the, you know, of of rape and sexual violence and I've always been interested in trying to always stay up on, on the up and up on um on those topics, and even I fell victim to it. You know, I was assaulted in what they call a brief encounter um, assault, and so that's someone I'd met earlier in the day, had been introduced introduced to, and so it kind of came in under my radar. We're either taught it's someone we, we know well, but we tend to be taught more. It's just like a stranger that comes out of nowhere. Right. And um, so this was something I, I wasn't prepared for on several levels. Um, but as I talked in the in the presentations, I explained to people just to set the table with them that I had been pretty good, I thought, about going through the checklist to explain to this person, this man that I was going to meet for a drink, you know, I'm not looking to have sex. Um, I'm an adult. I can say those words to you. And um, I'm not drinking heavily. I know I, you know, I don't want anything to alter me. And I'm going to set a curfew. And I'm going to look at your license to know your name. I mean, I thought I was pretty savvy. And yeah, oh, you really said that. I'm going to I'm going to look at your license and know your name. That's something that would never occur to me in meeting somebody out on yeah. vacation. Or so I thought I was like, you know, if there was a committee that was going to give out a gold star, right? right. That, I was waiting for it. I and was you would think that star. it would dissuade somebody from doing so to think that you were not 
altered and drunk that you had made it clear that you weren't in for you know sex right. and that you knew his full name and you weren't he wasn't going to be able to be an anonymous absolutely but the as we learn and as i learned and the years after we don't teach men or women about predators so we don't teach them what predatory behavior looks like so i'm so busy looking at this checklist and i'm unaware you know of the fact that he's just seeking to isolate me and once that's accomplished you know all bets are off um i now look at every case in the news to see you know is there a power differential um was there something used to bring about consent whether it was a weapon whether it was alcohol whether you know to make to have the victim do something that normally they would not agree to um and so it changed everything after I was assaulted and after I got educated. But when you're in it, you were never taught to look for those things. Right. You're sitting there, you know, congratulating yourself and all the things you did right. And he was able to just get me alone for about 10 minutes and that was it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So this was someone that you had been introduced to by by somebody, a, a cafe owner or something yeah. in, in Italy. The last day of your vacation, oh, this, this guy, Marco, he's a great artist. You'll want to talk to him. You meet him with yeah. your friend earlier in the day. You agree to have drinks with them later that night. And he wants to show you this great view from his apartment. So you go up there with him. Yes. And I saw it well, because we had a conversation. So Marco um, told me how, you know, he, he's been an artist in Rome for years. You know, he said 20 years. He's from Perugia. And um, his father apparently is a more famous artist than he is, but he was really interesting. He had, um, you know, done shows at the Jacob Javits Center um, in New York and China. And um, he actually, the cafe owner, Marco, my friend and I, we went and saw a studio, which wasn't far from the cafe. So, um, and I guess it was a place Caravaggio had used to work, worked out of. Wow. So it was really, you know, those big old beautiful buildings in Rome. Um, so we saw his art, and, um, you know, it was just nice. Everything about it was one of those things that's kind of cultural when you're on vacation, and you meet people sure. and you talk to them. And I have traveled extensively, so I wouldn't necessarily be afraid to do that. Um, and so when we were talking later on, when we were out, he was telling me that his um, rooftop view was so coveted that during the Roman Film Festival that uh, a lot of kind of the promoters use it for parties and drinks. And so... Um, you know, I was curious. I saw it. I went and saw it the first time, and I had seen his ID. I asked for his ID before. I said, yeah, I'll go see this thing. It's not far from my hotel. And um, I went up there with him. I saw it. It was beautiful. I took a picture. I looked around. And then we left and went out again. So the second time was the time I got attacked. It right. wasn't the first. And what you can look back now and see is he was testing if he could get me alone. Right. Um he was testing where, where he could get me to. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've set these boundaries, these, these guidelines. I'm, I'm comporting myself properly. Um, and, oh, by the way, I've made it 32 years and been alone with plenty of men and managed, you know, not to suffer the way that I wound up suffering later that evening. Right. And you're 5'10", former academic All-American volleyball player at Syracuse. So, you know, you're an athlete and you carry yourself in the world the way that I 
always carry myself. And something you said in the presentation um, that you'll get to, I'm sure, in a moment reminded me of, of I always say if I'm walking down the street, I'm not naive, but I also think they're probably if someone's looking to attack someone and mug them, they'll probably pick someone other than me. Just I'm six Absolutely. feet tall. Like I just you know, don't look it, like someone that's going to just, you know, just they're probably going to pick someone smaller. I was lulled into that. I mean, that's the thing. My thought of just how what and you're the same way. I mean, I've been around you enough times. Shoulders back. Yeah. You take up all the space, um, you know, for your frame. And, you, you know, it, it's it's just something we do. And yes, it is probably a defensive thing um, that I do. But I just I did not think, especially with Marco, he was only six one, but he did outweigh me by about, I'd say, 70 pounds, maybe 80 yeah. Um but it didn't send off warning bells. And I, I think half the shock of it was like, I can't believe this guy's going to try this. I'm stone cold sober. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I think there was just shock. There was so much shock. When someone tells you they're going to rape you, when they lock you in, when they mock you and throw the keys on the bed and, and stalk you around a table, um, it's so shocking to your system that I actually started to shut down. Yeah. And um, I almost shit my pants. And um, that's where that term comes from, apparently, yeah. mortal danger. I know it comes from war, but it's yep. what your body does to prepare it you. It happened to my dog, actually, when he got attacked by another dog. Yep. So it just, it's, and I was so like, what is going, my brain was fine. It was my body that was frozen. Right. My legs were just frozen to the ground. And uh, and I'm just lucky that, and I say lucky, I you can sit here and think you're the biggest badass, but your body's like, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're either going to, you know, shut down and fall on the floor and he's going to do what he wants, or you're going to fight. And you can't really sit there and know which it's going to be until you're in that moment. You can't replicate it in practice. You can't, I took self-defense classes and, and I, you know, I understood the principles and stuff, but you just don't know until you actually feel mortal danger. So, um, yeah, it was quite a shock. And I, look, I, I didn't talk about it much yesterday because I'm not, I definitely got my shots in on him. I knocked him over two or three times. I broke all of his potted plants on his porch. Right. Um, it was a knockdown, drag out brawl. But the thing is, I was the one in so much fear. He wasn't. So it was exhausting my body. It was right. just draining me. And yeah. I, I felt like water. And I knew if I did not get out of there, I was done. Right. Not just raped, but dead. Yes. Yeah, because now it was so bad. See, you know, rapists don't want to leave marks or evidence or whatever. And now it was so bad he knew I, I wasn't willing. So now right. if you rape me, there's still blood everywhere. There's broken right. things. I'm going to go to the cops. Yeah. And I would kill me if I were him. I, it just yeah. got out of hand. He got sloppy. Um, I believe, yes, he definitely has done this before. I, no one could ever convince me otherwise with, because he was so comfortable. Right. And you he said that he had, he had had a lot to drink and got kind of frenetic and just, yeah. dis, you know, distracted and whatever before. And you had decided, okay, it's probably time to leave. You know, things are a little off. And you tried to run away when he first threw the keys and grabbed you and whatever. And uh, he grabbed you in a way that you that belied your sort of belief of how strong you were. Yeah, when um, when I tried to leave and he, he bit my, my mouth and shoved his hands down my pants and inside of me and jammed them into my pubic bone. Um, it was such shock to the system. And then when he told me I wasn't going anywhere and I was, he's very angry with me. Um, you know, I, I realized I was going to have to go through him to get outside on the patio to get away. And that first contact and dropping my shoulder and kind of plowing, trying to plow through him, he caught me 
buy a belt. That's at the time of fashion was you wear that belt high waisted, you know, yeah. a little skinny belt. Right. And he he caught me by it, and he just tossed me in the air, and then he pulled me right back to him. So I remember feeling weightless, and then he jerked me back, and that's what broke my rib. Um, mm. I remember feeling a pop. And in, in my body kind of gave way on that lower right hand side, and oh yeah, it you know you have you can't fully appreciate it until you're in it, but all the things that are coming at you, and and there was no mercy, there's no mercy, you know mm-hmm. I've not ever come across that when you're saying to someone please stop, I don't want this, please stop, and he was just like locked in on me, it was like I wasn't a person, yeah. and it was so terrifying. Um, but I did feel relief that I was actually outside and could scream, but it was so late. It was two in the morning um, and nobody came. There was no lights, you know, no window lights came on. And uh, I I knew I was going to have to go over that ledge. And again, I'd been up there earlier in the evening, so I knew it was there. I knew there was a ledge about yeah. six or seven feet down. Um, and I'm just lucky I, I had just looked at it. I, right. You know, I look back on everything that played out. It, it played out in a way that actually helped me get away. The fact that you'd been there before, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and people don't so, know that part of the story. When I wrote for Marie Claire, that you know, there's almost so much detail, so they cut that out. So it sounds like the first time I've ever been up there was at two, but I'd been up there at like maybe ten or eleven, and I was right. there maybe ten minutes. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, this is gorgeous. Yeah, well done. Very cool. All right, let's go to the bar. You know. Yeah. Um, again, so you, I just you fought him too. off after <laughs> that. Yeah, you fought him off after that first time, and then you decided the only way out after you'd sort of stunned him briefly was to jump over the ledge. You jump over hoping to land on that ledge below the patio and your sweater gets caught, which sounds like something only from a movie and just the horror of that. Well, you know, it is. It it reminds me actually, and I weirdly use it, you know, the movie, the Incredibles where they always say to the, you know, don't ever wear a cape, (laughs) (laughs) right? You get sucked back. You know, I'm in the sweater, and of course, I get like at the worst time. It it was an H and M cowl neck sleeveless sweater, well, you know, well manufactured. Apparently, I could not tear through that thing, but it got. Right. I almost um, impaled myself like through my through my throat um, wow. with the with the pike. Um, it was like a, a like a I can't think of the word, but like um, a sprocket or something, and it like it, the picket came unloose. From, yes, from me and. And it went right up past my chin, and I was just dangling by the weight of the, the hold of the sweater. And I was kept pulling down to try to rip through it. And this thing, I don't know what machines they made it with, but it just wouldn't budge. And then Marco had gotten up by that point, and he was trying to pull me up by my head. Mm. And I'm pulling down, and he's, I'm like, he's going to snap my neck. And I keep saying oh. to him, just let me go. It's over. It's over. Just let me go. Um, you know, and just let go of me. And he, he was like a monster. I can't, there was no, there was no mercy and no concern. I'm, I'm like, if you keep jerking me like this and this gives way, I'm going to miss the ledge and I'm going to fall. You know, I knew that I was doing the calculation and it, it didn't matter. And, and I remember his finger came stuck up my nose. Like he pulled up my, Mm. that's why my nose was just constantly bleeding. Um, for hours after because his fingernail not only did he hit it and broke it but then he he reversed his finger up it so um you know when the sweater broke it was god's hand as i like to say and i landed right on the spot i was hoping to and uh and i remember standing and i see him run back into the house and i'm thinking oh he's coming for me because you know he knows where he's going i don't know where the hell i'm going right and i just start my run and 
And I was in at least flat boots, but knee-high boots, leather boots. It's ridiculous. And running. And in between the buildings in Rome, they have these very big wrought iron metal spikes that are like half moons. Mm-hmm. Well, it's there to prevent people from climbing between buildings. And they're rusty. And I had to, I had to swing around these things, go weightless over the street, try not to impale myself to land on the other side. It was an obstacle course. And I look back and, you know, it's just one of those things they say, like people lift cars, you know, they have superhuman strength. And I was superhuman for about 20 minutes. So, yeah, so you're racing across, was it basically patios and like um, It was ledges, 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 and then rooftops that were like, um, you know, uh, in triangles, right? So Yeah, what floor was this? uh, Sixth floor. I was on the Sixth. sixth floor. I ran next door. I probably went up half a level because um, it's very uneven. I mean, these buildings right. have been there three, four, five hundred years, some of the neighborhoods in Rome. And it's a hodgepodge. And then the next one was terracotta. I remember that. It was the third roof. It was terracotta and it was mossy. And since it's two in the morning, it was wet. Mm. And it's, you know, it's in a triangle, right? So I get on it and I just start sliding backwards. And I tell you, I almost went right off of it, right backwards, fell back off of it. And I just somehow stopped myself, and I wailed myself in the face. And I said, Carrie Potts, get a fucking hold of yourself. Get a hold of yourself. Um, because I knew I was moving too fast and making stupid decisions. Right. And it was going yeah, to get me killed. Yeah. So you eventually come up upon a, a ledge that has, or, or a patio that has a door. You knock on it hard enough for the man to let you in, and let you go out down the stairs out the front and then you sprint to your hotel where you have um, a friend there. You tell her everything that happened and you call the police and then you end up going through this very lengthy investigation with them going back to the place where you, where you ran across the ledges that happened to be that the wife of the the man who let you into their apartment to go downstairs and escape uh, was standing outside when, when you were talking to investigators and couldn't remember exactly which building. And she said, Oh, I, you, my husband let you in, which you thought was another act of, of God or a moment of grace and helping you. So you get to the end of this investigation and you clearly are injured and you can point to every place along the way, you know, his name and everything else. And, um, and and what happened to him in light of this? Well, there was a one-year investigation. I was called back to Rome. Um, in Rome, the judge can also be the prosecutor. It's really weird. So I was called back for an in-person interview. I had four days to get there. And uh, during the interview, my attorney's not allowed in the room. I'm in there with an interpreter from the State Department, um, a secretary, a recorder, the judge and her assistant, and it was almost five, six hours of just brutal questioning. She's testing my metal, right, to see mm-hmm. if I'm, if because everything sounded so crazy to her on paper, mm-hmm. and um, yet there were people saying, you know, this happened. We have witnesses. She did all these things, and I come out of there, and so the charges go from five years against him to twelve. I had done so well, and um, and so she concludes her investigation about eight months later, and she presents to his attorney. Um, the evidence is such that your your client will not be found innocent if this goes to trial. The likelihood is that he will be found guilty, so you may want to um, consider pleading to this. And in Italy, you don't bargain down the charge. They bargain down the sentence, but he had to plead guilty to a sexual okay. assault and simple assault. And then it's the sentence that gets bargained down. He wound up with t- 11 months, 10 days, 
and mm. um, and then five years probation. So he never had to go to jail. The Italian jails are overrun. They have about six million extra people, um, and they have no place for people. And they're at a point where they're saying to people like Marco, who almost killed me, who almost raped me, you know, your crime isn't meet the threshold to be in jail. Wow. So yeah. do you, so he pays your legal fees, but never goes to jail. Nope. Have you been back to Italy since? I have not. And I plan to go in a year. My anniversary of the crime, my 10 year is um, November 11th, November 12th. Remember it happened at two in the morning in Italy, which would have been still a previous day in the States. Right. Um, 2018 is, is going to be the 10 year. So I think I'm going to go back and I actually want to write an article and, and find all the different people um, from the prosecutor to my attorney and, and maybe even Marco. I'm not afraid mm. of him at all. That's what I was asking. You're not. So when everything was done and you know that this person who did this to you is free, did yeah. you ever think or worry? I mean, he knows where you work. You're yes. easy to find. You're public in telling your story. That yeah, he would come and find you, worried. or that there would be. Uh, I even know. had bodyguards go back with me when I uh, went to be interviewed. Um, yeah. I had I had bodyguards. The, the company helped um, bring someone down from. I guess he protects the Saudi royal family. It was crazy. He met me in the Brussels airport, and um, I thought he was going to kill me. Wouldn't you kill me once I get over there and make me go away? And you know, right. once I'm dead, I mean, great. But um, I learned and I figured out that Marco is just a loser. I mean, he's just like a feckless loser, doesn't have a ton of money. His dad was pissed off that he embarrassed the family this way. And all of my fear, I mean, I just, I realized through the process from all the information, everything I knew, his dad had to pay my bills. His dad had to pay my legal bills. Uh, legal bills. And yeah. so people are like, do you want a civil case? And, and one, I was too exhausted to go after him financially. But two, how do I put a price on what my life is worth? Right. And three, he had no money. Like, I, you know, the whole thing was... He's just a loser. Yeah. But what about, you know, it would it would worry me that he would do this to someone else. Oh, I believe he has already, and I believe he did it well before me. I, I can't do anything about that. Right. But right. You're my... not going to start a campaign, like, posting his face all over Italy. Like, it's not. Oh, I thought about, yeah. Not no, the I way your life about it. can but I go, go, though. Perugia is like, <laughs> Perugia is like lots of, uh, lots of elements, I guess, that I don't want to invite upon myself. Right. And I thought that my um, my exchange with what happened was, well, now I do this work and I right. help prevent a, t- a ton more Marcos and I help help the people that they hurt. So, you know, that's the that's the give back or that's the exchange. I mean, that's what I tell myself otherwise. Right. I mean, I would still be really bitter about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's the kind of case that if if anyone looked at it with just the facts and not your story and not knowing you, they would say, well, Guy didn't even go to jail. She didn't even yeah. get in, like she didn't even file a civil case. So yeah. probably wasn't true. Right. right. I mean, Absolutely. you know, he probably pled guilty just to just because it was easier than going to trial, which people often say, oh, you just paid her off because it was easier. He didn't actually. Right. Do it. And I but I knew he did it. So I thought, yeah, here's a guy who presented a, his first witness statements. He, he submitted three different types and each one of them made me go from being a drunken hussy to actually being like a dedicated burglar. That he was trying oh, yeah. to fend off from stealing. I mean, it was actually, it was comical, except it wasn't, because I'm like, somebody out there is going to believe this that reads this. Right. Yeah. Um, but for him to have to write, well, I did all these things to her, I still have that. And no victims, victims don't get that. Nobody gets that. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like the holy grail, and I didn't appreciate that fully at the time, and I appreciate it now. 
Um, but also then to go after him financially, I thought, oh, well, she she did this so she could get money. I mean, you can't win. You find out you can't win. But I, I also don't take my cues externally overly much, so I wasn't too worried about what people would say. The people in my life would never say that about me. Of course, yeah. Yeah, but it's a it's an example, and it's a good example, and so are Darren Sharper or Bill Cosby. Right. And, and anybody who doesn't believe the Bill Cosby thing at this point is, is just willful ignorance. Uh, examples of how you can spin something in a way yeah. to believe it if you want. And then when it comes out, it's it's that how how many ways we convince ourselves to to victim blame or to find fault first before we we just believe somebody we just because because they well, have no reason to lie. I, I approached that, so that was a good root cause or part of my my presentation yesterday was to explain or on Wednesday was to explain to people why we do that. It's actually not unknown why we do that. It's too terrifying to think that this can happen to us. And mm-hmm. we do all these these little mental games to separate ourselves, to make the other person an other, right? That we don't want to see ourselves in them because it's terrifying. I mean, how do you, especially women, right? How do you function if you think at any time that kind of thing can happen to you? Even though, again, it's happened to me once in you know now 40 years, um, but it has so paralyzed us um, as a society, the fear of it and the way we talk about it, that we will continue to do that to the people who are harmed. Um, rather than accept that that could happen to us. Yeah, it's, I actually was just doing some research on it for a story, and it's it's something called the belief in a just world theory. Yeah. Where yep. if you, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sure you know of it. If if yeah. if you can say, well, I would never dress like that, or I right. would never drink that much, or I would never go home with a man I just met, or I would never walk down a dark street at night, or right. whatever excuse we've come up with, then it will never happen to me. And that way, if you can blame the victim for something, you take ownership and you believe that you are actively participating in keeping yourself out of trouble, even though you can do all of those things right and it can still happen. And the same goes for men or women who are worried about being falsely accused. If they believe that that's a possibility, then they're protecting against the fear of that by assuming that people are doing that and that there's got to be a reason why this, this would happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the fascinating. On the head. To me. And those yeah. two things, they shape everything. Those two fears. And that's why we're so focused on, on we're so concerned about convicting a guilty, uh, an innocent person, because we're so terrified that would ever happen to us. And so we're willing to sacrifice the thousands and thousands of people who have been victimized. Because then we say, well, but I would have never been that stupid. It's it's easy to explain, I, you know, it's hard for people to accept. And, but I find that if you deliver it in the right way and give, you know, you don't come at it finger wagging or whatever, people are open to it. They just don't get this information. Where are they going to get right. this information? Who's yep. interested in finding it out? You know? Until it's too late and because it's someone they know or, yeah, right. it's not it's, something it's people seek out. Usually. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and it, it works in terms of something like Michael Bennett as well or any really any – yeah. African-American person that has experienced police brutality, it's easier to say, well, why was there stoplight? Why was there um, taillight out in the first place? Or why did they I run? I actually see a lot of parallels. Now, I yeah. am very careful. I, I don't, you know, venture too much into equating, um, you know, what is being experienced in African-American community and, and other um, communities to, uh, to rape victims. But I do see similarities. I see us drilling down 
on the person victimized and looking, oh, well, he was, right. you know, he had drugs. Because then we don't have to worry about it happening to us. Well, right. then we can trust the police then because we're not, you know, but it all right. comes back to, to sexism and racism. And that's why this right. was framed this way so long ago that it's now become the norm to view it this way. And, and that's what I want to talk about from your presentation, too, yeah. is the way we frame things, especially as media and this was a quote you had in there. Language can never be neutral. It creates versions of reality. To describe an event is inevitably to characterize that event. And our job as people calling games or telling stories or hosting radio shows or giving commentary on TV is to try to explain and inform and give opinion. And if we are not edu educated enough in how to present these cases and talk about them, then we're perpetuating stereotypes and we're perpetuating the way that these things can be framed. Yep. And without even knowing it, so many people, you know, there was that very, you know, well-known incident where Stephen A said, well, sometimes women provoke domestic violence. Or there's yeah. the problem with yeah. people always saying he made a mistake, right? right? Yeah. And there are those of us, especially at ESPNW, who are working very hard on this, who are constantly pushing back. Don't say that's not a mistake. A mistake is I forgot to leave your lunch out for my kid this morning. Right. And they have, you know, that's not a mistake. And the language that we use and how it influences the way people think about it. Well, absolutely. And, and let's remember, and I, I mentioned this, is that we, because victims do not come forward, because there's so much shame, embarrassment, and, and fear, Everyone in general in society learns about it from what they read and what they hear from other people who are reading the same things and, and maybe anecdotal, you know, stories from people. Mm -hmm. um, it's, or the accused and the, vic and the lawyers for the accused who have been using right. the same exact ways to defend this forever. Right. I mean, ex exactly. Um, and so, the th you know, for me, uh, I don't, I don't, I, we don't know what we don't know. Um, but I do believe, especially with ESPN, it, it wasn't just my, my personal connection to this topic, right? It's also my background as a trained journalist, and I was one for a few years before I went to the dark side and became a publicist. <laughs> um, but I have such an appreciation for the, the rigor um, of the people at our company with which they r research and report. But to me, the volume and the reach of our company um, and the audience um, when we talk about these crimes, like the potential to do harm just by not doing it right or doing it well mm -hmm. um, is a very real thing. It's very tangible. And to me, I'm, I was just concerned after like the Stephen A um, suspension and just other instances or other some decisions. Um, and these are decisions every other company is making. It's just I happen to be particularly interested in this one. Um, and yeah, so my my approach, my reason to talk about this was uh, to tell them what I know, to tell them I understand what your job is. And I know a journalist, you're not to be an advocate, but you're absolutely kidding yourself if you think you're at an equitable level in how you're presenting things. Mm -hmm. You are kidding yourself if you think you're at neutral. You're not at neutral. You are playing right into the hands, and you are lifting, you are elevating people who commit the crimes, and then you're, you're also helping get them off. I've um, noticed that a lot. It permeates every who, aspect. Yeah. The people who are more informed, who do their best to really try to be neutral, which was what I tried to be throughout Patrick Kane's investigation. So right, we need more right. information. We need to respect both sides. Um, yep. It is as much of an agenda to go by the status quo as it is to push against it. We just don't want to see that as an agenda. If you're willing right. to accept the status quo, you are choosing that just as much as someone chooses to not 
allow for the status quo to dictate what you do. People just don't see it that way, right? So, well, they don't. They don't see it that way. And let's remember, okay, um, who's our newsrooms continue to lack diversity, okay? And the people who have set up the AP style and the SPJ and the best practices were written by men, and this is a crime that is committed um, mostly, not all, but mostly by men. And so, and men have this fear about women lying and being accused. And so these are the people making the decisions. And all of it goes back to that. It all goes back to men and women. And the larger studies that have been done on women not being believed ever. Right. Right. Not just on sexual assault, but on everything. This goes back to to the Bible. I mean, we're talking biblical stuff here. We're talking Adam and Eve and distrust. You know, I mean, was it Henrik Ibsen's play? You know, where there's... You know, and these things go back decades, hundred years. Yeah. Um, men live in fear that women are lying to them about who their children are, or um, you know, committing lying about you know what they were being hit or hurt, and they are enduring. These are mm-hmm. enduring beliefs, and they are pervasive. And we are at 2017, and we're still saying the same things. And and I think I just saw. I don't know. I just saw a window. Um, and I had a, I had the right person, Stephanie Julie. She's our senior vice president of, pro- of production for NFL and college. And and after Brent Musburger and Joe Mixon, the Sugar Bowl, the um, you know, the uproar over how he uplifted Mixon and never mentioned the victim. Um, that was that was kind of the watershed moment. I went to Steph and said, Hey, I want a shot at this to talk to our people. Yeah. And I had the trust. And you had to have both those things to you know to have access to our folks. And so I definitely took all those things we talked about right now, all the things I know, and tried to find the right way to to share it with them. You nailed it, Um, not only in your own story and your own uh, experiences, but in the way that we present it. So let's go over a couple best practices and easy mistakes that people tend to make. Um, You had a series of headlines that you had during your presentation and explained how they um, they were misleading. And the first one is it reads case involving serial pervert being heard by Georgia Supreme Court today. What was wrong with that headline? Who um, serial pervert was wrong with it because when you read the article, you know pervert. Pervert. When we think of that word, the connotation of it, it sets you up to go approach the sub, the, the article. Um, kind of builds a framework for you. You're thinking there's gonna be something kind of creepy pervy, which is a word we use when we're saying someone's kind of creepy, um, but not not horrible. Um, like a peeping you know, disturbing. Tom. Yeah. And then you get in the article, and this is about a man who committed 34, he got 34 felony convictions for aggravated sodomy, rape, and sexual assault of 19 women and girls who were mm. at the dentist, and he was a dental assistant, and when they were out and under you know, um, you know, local anesthesia, that he was assaulting them. And there's 19 that we know of, right? right. Um, but what, a, I mean, a completely violent, horrible offender, and they, the article creates, you know, describes him as a serial pervert. That's a problem. There's no justification for it. Um, it, it you know, sometimes I hear it's, oh, it's a space issue. That's not a space issue. No, rapist is shorter than pervert. Right. And not only that, I don't buy it when people say, well, that's the headline department. 
I believe the headline should have the same rigor as that which went into the article. And if journalists, and I know they do, are proud of their product and believe they're doing it right, why would you ever turn over your work to a headline department and not make sure that they're representing what you did and what you worked on? Right. So another one, Michigan mother pleads guilty to having sex with teenage boys. This one comes up all the time. It comes up all the time, and we hear about it a lot more. One, because we are talking more about these things, um, and people are covering them. But the way they write it is they make, I mean, in that article, a mother, they define her as a mother. (laughs) Um, They don't define her as an offender, um, as someone who's committed sexual, child sexual abuse. Um, So they already make her seem not that bad. And then they say sex with teenagers, which by law is statutory rape at a a baseline. I don't know the age of the teenager, Um, but then it would be rape or child sexual abuse. But when you read that, it sounds like um, kind of like you see a a more extreme version of that is sex romp with teenage boys. I see a lot of that as well. And what it does is it gives the offender a pass like she's not that bad, like women offending, uh, women perpetrating on young boys grooming them, psychologically manipulating them, confusing them about the boundaries between children and adults and who they're safe with is not that bad. And then the worst part of it is it gives young boys no no place to be a victim. Mm-hmm. It, it makes it seem like they should be getting a notch on their belt and a slap on the back for getting under, you know, an older woman. Well, um, a lot of people believe that still. There is a seriously flawed, there's a Barstool Sports um, I only know this because someone sent it to me. I would never have seen it on my own because I don't go there. Has a recurring feature grading the attractiveness of various female rapists who rape young boys, teachers, specifically teachers who rape their students. And they grade them on their attractiveness level. And then when things get sad, there was a story where one tried to commit suicide. They said, well, this is a real bummer. We don't want to be writing about a guy committing suicide. We just want to be writing about how great it is that you're getting blowjobs from your teacher. And you're right, it completely disallows a victim from being a victim. And they're going to have that in their heads, and that's going to mess with their own relationships and sexual interactions forever. Well, I, you know, and I, what I think what I, what's odd to me about it is Barstool is they have some funny, really funny content, some, you know, very youth-relevant kind of things. They don't, that kind of is needless. That, to me, is a yeah. kind of a needless... Unnecessary. Unnecessary area for them to be in. And what's also strange about it is it's very damaging to the very audience that they're seeking. You know, they think maybe they're making fun of women, but they're actually really harming guys. Yeah, it's less actually about objectifying the women as it is about... um, Shaming them and and not giving them a space. And so it does real harm. And they have thousands, because if millions are reading, I don't know. I, I, I don't visit them either, but, you know... You do the math, there are thousands that are listening to them that are getting their message like, this is a joke, I should just get over it, but why can't I? Why am I cutting myself? Why do I feel suicidal? Why do I have to... It's, it's weird to me that men mm-hmm. would engage in that in particular. It's unnecessary, and I do hope at some point they would depart that. Um, they're funny without it. Right. They can be. Not always. Um, I, I don't... Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't... <laughs> I. <laughs> I admit that I, I'm so busy with my own work, I'm not too yeah. aware. Um, yeah. But, you know, that um, there's nothing good about that. The There's another one. It's not the headline. It's the lead 
Out of Anchorage, a domestic dispute aboard a cruise ship led to the death of a 39-year-old Utah woman, and the FBI is investigating what happened in U.S. waters off Alaska, the agency said Wednesday. So a domestic dispute aboard a cruise ship led to the death of a 39-year-old Utah woman. This resonated with so many people that I spoke with, uh, spoke to on Wednesday. Um, we call this the in- case of the invisible perpetrator. We don't mention the person who did the crime. I mean, anywhere in that lead sentence, at the time that this article was written, it was known that the husband had confessed to murdering his wife. He slammed and crushed her skull until she bled to death and died in front of their three children on their 18th wedding anniversary. And he said, it's because she wouldn't stop laughing at me. So what is wrong with that one simple sentence is it says a domestic dispute His characterization of the event, we don't know because she's dead. So we have no idea if that's even accurate. But it's not accurate to even credit the person who murdered this woman with providing a reason. I mean, this is like, you know, batterers say, well, she's she deserves it. She's angry. You know, she's she's nasty. I don't like her. She's a liar. They justify their behavior and lie about it, the justification. And so in this article, we see that the reporter Whoever wrote it said, oh, okay, so they were having an argument, a domestic dispute. Well, if she was laughing at him, where was the dispute is my other question. Right. Um, but what it does is it says she participated, in, she participated in bringing about her own death. And it says domestic dispute led to the death. A domestic dispute is it doesn't have arms or legs. It's not okay. a person. The person who murdered her was known. It was her husband. And there's no reason that I can think of if we are looking to be accurate. And you know the, the um, inverse pyramid of, of journalism, that you lead with the most important information in that first sentence, and the reader there looks and says, I have no idea how she died or who murdered her. Right, right. So when we get into language, and you mentioned Brent Musburger, and that was a pretty public one, um, but there are also those little everyday yeah. things that people get used to, calling things incidents, which which I often do instead of saying, we always say the Ray Rice incident instead of the Ray Rice assault. Um, right. and, or if you look at the language of blaming, that's a perfect example of between the, the release of the first video and the second, when there was no indication for sure that that second video would ever make it public. Ray Rice's lawyer, who knew what had happened and had seen the second video, still perpetuated the myth and the potential that we, you didn't see what happened before he hit her. So you don't actually know if if they were in a fight together, if she started or if she'd been attacking him and he was self-defense and and everybody bought that. The number of people in my timeline that decided that that was much more believable when you see the end result of a man dragging an unconscious woman out of elevator, that it was more believable that she had attacked him and he had tried to defend himself and had accidentally done something than that he had hit her. And that stems from... A lack of education, but let's remember a defense attorney's only job is to get the client off. Right. And the restrictions in these types of investigations, usually, and I don't know specifically with this one, is usually the prosecutor, the person doing the investigation, can't talk about it. The victim does not want to talk about it. And that leaves this huge vacuum to be filled by the hot air of the defense attorney. Mm-hmm. And the defense attorney, and, and history shows us, that all he has to say are, she she caused it. She was part of it. Women are bad. Women She's not a lie. trustworthy victim. She right. has and boom. flaws. Yeah. Boom. It, it, it changes the game. 
I mean, it's, and that's it's, what's happening with Ezekiel Elliott right now. It absolutely is. Um, I, I've been asked for my opinion on that, and I finally looked through everything. I talked to people really close to the case, and and his. It doesn't surprise me. I I think it offends at a certain level that like accept it. I feel like saying accept it. There's nothing left here, um, but just going to town on on victim blaming on painting. Um, that you have to be perfect and um, you have to be a, a nice goody two-shoes in order to be believed that anyone else is a lying whore who wants money. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I asked everyone I spoke to, every time I present, I said, give me three women that are rich and famous from lying about domestic violence or lying about rape. Give me three, give me one. And no mm-hmm. one can. They just, uh, it, it, there's this wide held belief and yet there's no, there's nobody they can bring forth, and we should see hundreds. We should be able to name them. We should be able to alphabetize them if that's the case. Um, but defense attorneys are able to put that forth. People believe it because that's what we're conditioned to believe, and and they walk. Um, yeah. So some of the language failures that we get into are using the language of consensual sex, consensual sex to describe <laughs> assaultive acts. So that's the one we went over with you know, when there's statutory rape to describe sex between a minor and an adult as a regular sex act instead of forceful. Right. So we see that a lot. Someone um, wasn't fondled, they were grabbed or Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything in our language right now is to cover the violence of the act to make it seem not so bad. And then what that does is it help it, it prevents people from being held accountable. So we don't just not talk about them. You know, we only talk about the victim in the stories. And then we make it seem not so bad, domestic dispute instead of, you know, violent murder. We say child sex, which is actually not an actual thing. There's no such thing. We see child sex ring. It's a child rape ring. Um, We keep using these words, and what it does is it has the effect, because we're exposed to it dozens and dozens of times a day, is we're not as disturbed by it. We know these laws are on the books. There's, it's punishable by death here in Georgia, right? Hmm. Um, so th- someone at some point said these are just deplorable, horrible crimes, and yet we do all these things to make sure that no one's ever held accountable for actually committing them. It's a really strange disconnect, and I do believe the language is, is, is the Part thing that's, that's yeah. making the disconnect. Talked about victim blaming, um, stuff like the victim, a drug addict and homeless man. So then do we then not care that he was murdered because he was a drug addict and he was homeless so he deserved to be murdered? Or the woman right. who was jogging so alone at night. the person writing it has the responsibility of sifting through and saying, what is accurate here? Right. You know, he's a, uh, okay, he's a drug addict, whatever, but I could have also said he's, you know, from Illinois and a father of three. Right. What is driving which words we pick? Mm-hmm. And what is the responsibility? And that's more nuanced. They can say, well, that's a fact. But there's a lot of facts. Why are you picking those particular facts? Mm -hmm. Because the facts you're picking seem to make him sound less worthy of dignity and not being attacked and not being murdered, not being raped, or like it's somehow not so bad. And it's, again, it just, it permeates everything, um, how we think about the victim, how bad we feel, and, and how much or how little we want to hold someone accountable. You talked about mistakes versus decisions. That's a big one, especially um, looking at the people in charge at Baylor. 
they didn't make a mistake that they now deserve a second chance. They made a repeated decision over the course of several years. Yes. It was deliberate. Um, when we say mistake, it should be for something that lacks intent and is usually quickly followed by an act of empathy, right? I trip and, and spill my coffee on you. I am immediately sorry. Like, that's not anything I wanted to do. A decision is deliberate, and it occurs over time. Child molestation is a decision. Um, what happened at Baylor was a decision. It was complex and multi-leveled. Um, what happened at Penn State was a decision. And it seems like it's just nuanced, but it's not. They're very different things. They are very different. And if we keep calling something that was a decision a mistake, then we, we, we associate mistake with, like, a lack of blame. Mm-hmm. And why would we want to characterize or something, something that, that is fixed immediately after? And that's, right. that's important too, right? If it was a mistake and there was no intent, then there's nothing to be fixed there. It won't happen again. If it was a decision right. and we are asked to give someone a second chance, why? What, what makes you believe they will not make that decision again? What led to them making that decision and the thoughts in their head that allowed them to decide that the football team was more important than the girls getting raped? Why would we want that person in charge anywhere else again if that's the way their priorities are? And well, we I find talk the about people that chances. ask for second chances have a personal connection to whomever that person is or, or that program. Or the, so or maybe guilt of their own actions. I'm sorry, people say, say to me, Or guilt about their own actions. Right, people say exactly. to me all the time, right. oh, like you've never done anything bad. And I'm like, yes. I've certainly never done anything like this. So no, I don't think he should just get another job at a different college. Right. They're either projecting their own inadequacy or whatever they did that was wrong, or they are so completely biased and unable to be objective about something, and they don't want to hear it. They don't want to be reminded that they're putting their money behind a team or a university that has covered up something this awful, and then they turn on the people that came forward. Um, you know, this, this is not unique to college football or sports or anything. It's just it's human behavior. Right. Look at Woody Allen or Michael Jackson or R. Kelly or anybody else. It's it's easier to protect the things that bring you entertainment or joy than it is to actually dive deep into what you're protecting. It um, is because it's yet, inconvenient. It's right. inconvenient. It disrupts you. Yeah. Right. And, I didn't go to the Floyd is, Mayweather. Right. You know, I didn't go watch it. I want nothing Neither to do. I. I was invited to all sorts of parties. I, I personally said I cannot for a sec spend, spend any minute of my day watching him. Right. I don't care. That's my decision. But, you know, I do buy songs by artists that say some things I don't like. And it's, right. I live it myself. I'm not, I'm not a saint. Um, but I do have my line. It becomes, my line keeps moving and moving and moving. And I probably will be to the point where I don't interact with anyone that does these things. I feel like a right. hypocrite. Um, but there's a lot of work, to, a lot of things to undo. Again, I've only been a victim, you know, eight years of my life. I've been 32 at that time. And uh, there's just a lot of work I have to, have to do. Right. Get to a better place. Well, and and I think also people think if 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 we're proactive about wanting punishment for these things, that means we want punishment forever, and that there is no redemption and no t- no right. opportunity for a second chance. There is if there's transparency in what has changed and why we think recidivism will be avoided or why we think they're deserving of whatever. There are some things that are that are not rights. Being a college coach is not a right. If you are someone who has proved that your priorities are that jaded, you do not deserve. You can make a living. I don't care what you do. You could you could be you could be a landscaper. You could work in a restaurant. You could do do taxes. But being in a position to protect and be invested in the safety of students and athletes, that is not a job for you. Then, 
I always find it really interesting what we want athletes to get away with when we want them to get, or or coaches to get away with something we would never be as a common person. Or our neighbor Um, or our friend's boyfriend or, yeah. Right. I mean, no one would be able to work again at our company if there was a video of them doing what they did, what Ray Rice did to his wife, knocking a woman out, or what Joe Mixon did. I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want to sit in a meeting. I wouldn't want to be in a room with that person. You're not employable at any respectable place. It's going to take years. You're going to have to do the work of that's available to the section, section of people that commit crimes like that. Yet, it's an athlete, and this is, a, you know, millions of dollars. They're doing just fine. Mm-hmm. Why would we want them to have better than we would for ourselves? Or it, right. It's an interesting, Well, and that's weird... funny, too, because, like, if an athlete gets traded somewhere and I say, oh, I feel so bad for them, like, they love this city, but oh, they've got millions of dollars, they'll be fine. But then you say, oh, this athlete, they did something really bad. They should not be allowed to do this anymore. Oh, so they're not, they're not allowed to work, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you, how do mean, you juxtapose right. those two? These are, <laughs> again, anyone that's going to argue that has, you know, they have a personal stake in it, whether it's the team, whether they've done it, or they're just ignorant. It's one right, of the Or they three. just don't want morality to interfere with their, with what, you know, to be inconvenience what they enjoy. Yeah. Um, you talked about Monday morning quarterbacking, hindsight bias, you know, if she had wanted, you know, and, and that's another thing that's interesting in, in discussing cases of domestic violence and sexual assault is um, untrained people don't understand the sometimes inconsistent behavior of victims. They believe if you have done, if you have been raped, then you will not go have sex with your boyfriend the next day, or you will right. not, you will be curled up in a ball and you won't be able to speak for a week or whatever you have in your head is an idea of how people react to this. So what they might, without any education, deem as inconsistent behavior and then decide that that's why they're lying. There's a, any number of ways that people manifest their their victimhood and, and what has happened to them. And when people try to Monday morning quarterback or use hindsight bias to decide whether they believe someone looks reasonable or not, what they're bringing is a complete lack of education and understanding about victims to that conversation. Absolutely. You know, I, this is that point where I say, again, people aren't really interested in this stuff unless it happens. It comes to their doorstep. Um, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, but then we have all these folks who aren't trained out there talking about um, what led to something happening, what, you know, how they can see that someone brought it upon themselves. Um, they say these things. They have all the facts laid out in front of them, and it becomes linear to them as to how A to B to C, um, forgetting that for the person that was experiencing it, it didn't seem like that. They, were, they didn't have that information available to them. It didn't seem likely. I mean, a belief that someone would say, well, I want to go tonight and I want to hang by my neck off a balcony, mm-hmm. it's absurd. Or and to even lacks, to create a narrative for your story. Well, I mean, you were drinking with a guy you just met and you went back to his place. What do you expect to happen? Well, what is what happens to most people who do that? They they do a little canoodling and then they wake up and decide whether they want to canoodle with that person again or scurry on home. And that's it. You know, there's not there's not a whole lot of people that I know that have never decided to go smooch someone they just met for a while. Right. Well, and that was the part that that was my part that I was really struggling with myself over because, again, I I thought I was doing really well. Like, I I thought I'd been really clear. I mean, I don't have a problem being clear, if you know me, Um, that sex is not happening. And, you know, it just I thought like I had checked that box. I'd said it twice. And in the way I handled myself, um, 
And I said to God, if I had, I had 20 minutes left and I told him, I, I didn't, let's go sit on the Spanish steps. And, and he just said, Oh, come on. Like, and I just felt bad because he'd been fine all night right. and he'd been, you know, polite. We had a nice time talking and I just, I'll never get those 20 minutes back. And I beat myself up about why didn't I hold my ground? Um, but then I had to say, you know, I'm not that experienced dating. I am more inclined to think I'm screwing up (laughs) or just being too uptight. And um, just the fact that even went on this date was like a really big deal for me. Um, I'll never get it back. And I could play it over a million times. I just ask anyone who thinks that to just really look through my story. I wrote about it at my blog to just get all the detail that Marie Claire couldn't. And to just say, like, this was so easy to happen. Yeah. That's the scary part of it. Well, and and to understand everybody's reactions are different. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone's you know, reaction is different. Now, people don't know, I don't talk about this either, but I didn't cry at all until maybe 40 hours after. Right. I, I was so quiet. Well, you were in fighter mode. And I was pissed. And yeah. I was just withdrawn into myself. And then I was concerned in the police questioning for 14 hours that they're like, well, she's not weeping. Yeah. She's not, you know, I had a flat effect. And that's a very mm-hmm. common thing for a victim, just flat. Just, yeah. I, 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 I couldn't even emote, really. Um, I was concerned about getting all the information out of my head. I was perplexed as to what had just happened in my life and what it was going to mean. Um, and with a lot of victims, I mean, trauma is, it's a crapshoot. You have no idea until you're experiencing it. And so no one can judge that. But unless you have it, you don't know. Um, Trauma can make you cry. It can make you shut down. It can, you can be resilient and then it revisits you years later. Um, There's even stories of people being incredibly promiscuous afterwards because they've lost a connection to their sexuality. Yeah. That's something I see a lot. Um, I see that a lot. Like you said, not just go sex, have sex with their boyfriends, but seek it out from anyone to reestablish, I decide when and who and where. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a, it's that is that's self-preservation. It's not it's not promiscuity. It's self-preservation. It's a person trying to to right the ship and and reaffirm what they think they they know about themselves and what they can allow to happen to them. And it, it's interesting. I did a podcast couple months ago and had all sorts of people from the industry share stories of sexual harassment um, in the workplace from their time in this industry. And everybody oh, yeah. I asked had one. And I still feel guilty that I didn't say anything about mine. I still beat myself up for having seen that person multiple times afterwards and just sort of joking around, feeling like that's the yeah. only way I can make this better is to kind of act like it never happened versus making that person pay for it. You know, yeah. but but the feeling that you have of is this guy going to come and find me and kill me was also is this person, if I say something, going to go on and tell everybody that I'm a troublemaker and that it's not true. And that if they hire me, then Absolutely. I'm going to be saying that to everybody. And then my career is ruined because nope, of this that, person. Listen, and we need to be honest about that as women in the industry or men, if they experience it, it, I, it happened to me my first year out of college, my first job, and it went on for a year and he mysteriously left the company. I find out later because multiple cases came forward, Mm -hmm. but I didn't say anything because I was up against an older male. I was up against someone. It's a power dynamic. I'm sorry. Power dynamic. 
yes, the power dynamic. And then there was the element that this was the first person to ever hold that position who was African-American. And I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm um, racist and I'm a troublemaker and I'm bringing down this really, you know, no one's going to believe me and then I'll never get a job again. And it had such power over me that I dodged this person right and left. And then finally he was taken away. But I, when young women asked me how to handle it, I'm not the one to say, go run to HR. I'm not. Yeah, me neither. And I feel guilty I, when I don't. Yeah, I do. But I, I think I actually am just honest. I say, you do what, what you need to do. Um, you know, so whatever your concern is outranks whatever anyone else is going to tell you. Just like we tell victims, whatever feels good to you, whatever you want to do about this, you do it. Don't listen. You don't have to listen to anybody else. You don't have to bring charges. You don't have to forgive this person. You can forgive this person if you want. Um, it's the same principle. And, and that's my advice. And I, I do, I feel alternately crappy about it. But then I would be disingenuous to encourage them to seek because they're just, right. there's not the, the system environment isn't where set up. Yeah. 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 It's unfortunate. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask quickly, um, what's your take on the NFL deciding to do investigations outside the arm of the law? Because, you know, some of our very respected colleagues that I think have really insightful takes on most things think that the NFL shouldn't be involved at all in this. Think that if someone is not legally charged and the burden of proof is not met for for legal punishment, then they should not be punished otherwise by a league that is not equipped to do so. Um, I'm of the opinion that even if it's not the perfect process and even if they're not perfect at it, that we can't wait for for everything to be fixed by the law because we know it is deeply flawed. Um, but what do you make of, of especially, you know, Josh Brown, Ezekiel Elliott, Greg Hardy, Ray Rice, all these cases in the NFL and their decision to create a policy to handle it? Well, I think it's very common for an employer to have workplace investigations that never make it to the law, and they have every right to do so, to say these are the terms and these are the rules of engagement so that other people are safe within our walls or even beyond. Um, at the threshold for the criminal, uh, like you said, criminal court for charges to be brought, it it's so dysfunctional. That can't be the threshold. For someone to look at what happened to me and, and he never spent a day in jail, could you excuse the fact he almost murdered me, but he never spent a day in jail? The courts are not, those are not the standard to tell me by which how I'm supposed to feel or what we're supposed to be um, appalled by or what's not proper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think it's well within uh, the NFL's right to do so and say, if you are going to represent us, if you're here, um, you know, influencing children and, and families, um, there's a certain level of conduct we expect. So I don't have a problem with it at all. And I'm actually glad for it because without it, um, the men that can commit these crimes, the power and the money and the social power athletes have, it almost sets up a perfect, I mean, it doesn't, in terms of statistics, they're not, they don't, they don't offend at a much, much higher rate, but they're perfectly positioned to do so. And I am glad for it that there is some kind of measure that they have to take into consideration that can that can affect their bottom line or their endorsement deals if they have these if they commit these types of acts. I do know that the NFL is closest to its best expression of investigation. They've spent years and money, and no one has more more money and, and assets available mm-hmm. to it than the NFL that I can think of in sports um, to come as close as they can to to having a just process. Uh, again. You know, we're not privy to all the deep dive and the information, nor should we be. 
Um, but at a certain point, we have to say, do we want these people held accountable in some way? Do we want to be, do, if the courts don't punish them and the courts, again, the standard's high and there's all sorts of nonsense that goes on, do we want them then to not have any punishment? Um, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I agree. I think just because something isn't perfect doesn't mean it's it's not better than nothing, which is, is where right. we were at when we had the Milton Bradleys of the world and, and everybody okay. else where we just decided we didn't care what happened when we weren't watching them on television. Um, I cannot thank you enough for talking to me and for doing this. I am going to encourage as many people as possible to listen because I think there are people who will never get it, but there are plenty who just need more information. And hopefully if they get educated, it'll make them a little bit more open to understanding these issues. So, Well, I hope you. so. And I hope they know that, you know, what we talked about here, it's, it's men and women that are affected by this and invite them into the conversation. Yeah, it's not, you know, they're not coming in here and having, you know, a rip-roaring good time, but I, it, it is educational. And I do have high faith that most men and women want to learn these things. I know that. Yeah. You, you Yeah, you kind of have to believe that um, that most people are good. To, they are good. Yeah, exactly. That, that most people, most people would rather know the truth and have it, have right. it, have justice be served than defend something. And they just yeah. don't know. They just don't know any better. Well, you're the best. Thank no, you, you so are. much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. Oh yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for me to rant, rave, or tell you something to read, listen to, watch. I'll share a great story. I think you might like. Uh, whatever's on my mind, really. Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about Deshaun Watson, uh, that's what's on my mind right now. And I'd recommend listening to the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny um, when she had Jenny Rentas as a guest. The episode's called Big Money Goes Around the League. You can find that wherever you get your podcast. And Jenny's in about an hour and 10 minutes into it. Also listen to the March 18th Foxworth Friday episode of Bamani Jones' podcast, The Right Time. Again, find that podcast wherever you get your podcast. And the two guys have a really smart back and forth about the issue. Uh, always, always really good to be informed. You can also always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you have guest suggestions, dilemmas, questions, or more. And always go to the iTunes or podcast app, follow or subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please, and give me a good review. Uh, thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. That's what she said.